This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by HostGator.com. Do you need to launch your own website? If you're looking for one of the easiest ways to register, host, and build your site, you should check out HostGator.com. They have tools to help you get started immediately, whether you're transferring a domain or building your site from scratch. So, you know, all you fans who want to open up, here's a look at my robotguts.com or drcorbyforever.net or kenissecretlyarobot.org. You can just head over to HostGator.com and have that up before we're done with today's episode. Speaking of DrCorbyForever.net, a .net address is the best way to get a good domain name these days. Grab your .net today. It gets better, though. HostGator has 24-7 tech support on the phone, live chat, or email, and you can choose from shared or dedicated servers. All that plus packages that include unlimited storage and unlimited bandwidth. Order now with the coupon code MISSIONLOG, and you'll get 30% off at HostGator.com. Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 63. For the world is hollow, and I have touched the sky. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. From the East Coast, I'm Ken Ray. And from the West Coast, I'm John Champion. You know, Ken, from the window here of the Mission Log control room, I can see the entire world. Uh, you see, that's a, that's a common misconception. What you're actually saying is not the entire world. It's just Hollywood. Well, you know what? It's all I can see, and uh, you can't prove otherwise, so I'm going to go with it. <laughs> to me, it's the Hollywood is the entire world. See, I know you're making fun, but I actually, I, I, you know, I have no problem debating object permanence. <laughs> really? Uh, you know, it's just it's just a thing. But you know, we can talk about that some other time. Sort of, um, sort of like a like a Labrador puppy uh, has no no sense of object permanence. All right, dude. If you're gonna get insulting, we can just stop <laughs> this thing right now. I love Labrador puppies. All right, but but that's not what we're talking about today. Today we're talking about for the world is hollow, and I have touched the sky uh, from Star Trek, of course, and. Um, I, you know, there's not much to say about the title, other than the title is literally what happens in this episode, and it is a line literally spoken in this episode. Yeah. So stay not, tuned for that. Not once, but twice. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, right. It, it was actually felt kind of, well, we'll get to it. <laughs> yes, we will. But before we get to that, uh, I have to take us on a slight detour, and I have to do what I love to do every week, and that's trivia. You okay with that? I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I don't know. I'm still a little upset about this whole puppy thing. But, <laughs> but go ahead, maybe, maybe I'll get over it. You know, as you work your way through uh, trivia. For the trivia is dense, and I have touched the internet. Uh, here we go. This episode was written by Hendrik, a.k.a. Rick Volertz, and I'm probably pronouncing it wrong because I'm not Dutch, but he was. It was directed by Anton Tony Leader, and uh, these are both one-time contributors to Star Trek, although Leader had worked in sci-fi before. He even directed the pilot of Lost in Space, and Rick uh, wrote about six episodes of Voyage to the Bottom of the sea among other projects hey ken guess who did the voice of the oracle in this episode go ahead am i finally going to get it right is it james I th- duhan 
Ah, yes, give that man a gold star. It is Jimmy Doohan, uh, because he did seemingly every voice on on uh, Star Trek. Yeah, and did except it for the computer. Well. Except for the computer, yep, yep. Although he did some computers, just not the computer. Um, also want to mention that the old man in this episode, he who speaks the title of the episode, that was uh, actor John Lormer. Um, he originally played Theodore Haskins. You may be asking who that is. Well, he was one of the doomed crewmen of the Columbia in the Star Trek pilot, The Cage. So uh, he had some good screen time there, looking a little bit different than he does in this episode. Enough, though. I mean, a little bit different, but enough that I was mm. like, I know we've seen him before. I know mm-hmm. we've seen him someplace. We just and, didn't see him in the page boy wig. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, that's true. Um, mm-hmm. And so we would have actually seen him twice, right? We would have seen him in the cage and the menagerie. Correct. Yeah. Although the menagerie, well, yeah, of course, they're using clips from the cage. And, and it, it was pointed out by somebody that uh, this is the only episode where we get uh, a return of three of the original actors from the cage. We have Nimoy, we have Majel Barrett, and we have uh, John Lormer all appearing in this episode together. So a little mini cage reunion in that respect. <laughs> Very nice. Hey, remember that time we did that thing that nobody's going to see for years and years and years? Exactly. Yeah. Except it cut up in pieces of another episode. Right. Yeah. Um, the other standout guest star here we have to mention is uh, Catherine Woodville, uh, who was an actress I- into the 1970s, pretty much retired after uh, uh, after the dawn of the 80s. Um, she was uh, English and uh, played the first person to be killed on the long-running TV show The Avengers, and she later married Patrick McNee, who was the star of the Avengers. They were married for four years. After that, she remarried to Edward Albert. Please do not confuse him with Eddie Albert. Edward is the son of actor Edward, uh, of son of Eddie Albert. Uh, and Catherine Woodville passed away in 2013. Um, the disease that they mention in this episode, I'm uh, prepare for me to mess it up, uh, xenopolycythemia, uh, that if we break that down into uh, the component word, xeno meaning foreign, poly meaning multiple, and cythemia having to do with blood cells or blood flow, um, there is a real disease called polycythemia, xeno, of course, making it alien. And originally in the script, it was Scotty who fell ill, not Dr. McCoy. Now, speaking of Dr. McCoy and the actor who played him, DeForest Kelly, um, like every actor on every series, he always wanted to do more. And uh, we have a great article about him from the August 1968 TV guide in which he talks about how being a, a co-star, on a, a regular actor, a co-star on a series, all he really wanted was equal billing and how he had to fight for everything that he got. He had to fight just to have a, a parking spot and a dressing room by himself and to get stories that really highlighted him. Wow. DeForest Kelly talks of needing more attention on the show, so they threaten to kill his character? Spoiler alert, it looks throughout this episode as if McCoy is going to die. Other spoiler alert, he does not die. Prologue. Something has fired missiles at the Enterprise. Archaic weapons, chemically powered. Will the Enterprise be able to... 
Oh yeah, destroyed those. Not before they figure out where they came from, though. And now they're headed that way. In sickbay, Dr. McCoy and Nurse Chapel are arguing about something. She's called the captain to tell him, The McCoy says he'll do it. Now get out of here. When the two are alone, McCoy tells Kirk that he's run physicals on the entire crew and everybody's fine except for one guy. He's got xenopolysithemia, a terminal illness with no known cure. That crew member has one year to live, and his name is Leonard McCoy. But let's keep this to ourselves, okay, Captain? Act 1. Captain's Log. Well, I had to tell Starfleet about McCoy. I've asked for a new chief medical officer. I'm really not good at this whole secret thing. The Enterprise pulls up to an asteroid, 200 miles in diameter, and it is the source of the missiles. Spock says, well, it looks like an asteroid. It is, in fact, a spaceship. Atomic. Archaic. Leaving debris and hard radiation in its wake. It's 10,000 years old. Also, it's hollow with a breathable atmosphere inside. No life detected, though. Its passengers or builders or inhabitants must be dead. Plotting the asteroid's course, Spock says if allowed to continue on its way, it will collide with the planet Darren 5, a world of nearly 4 billion people. Kirk tells the crew to match speed and course with the asteroid ship. He and Spock are beaming over to check it out. Bone says he would like to go too, and while Kirk is worried, ultimately he relents. The three men beam into the asteroid, though you'd swear you were on the surface of a planet. A really ugly planet, but still, it looks like being outside in the daytime. On a really ugly planet. Spock doesn't get why anybody would do that. The three start looking around. Still no signs of life. Let me just uh, check behind this thing big enough to hold a guy. No, nothing there. Let me turn my back now on this thing big enough to hold a guy. No, still nothing. Let me... Oh, we're being attacked by a bunch of guys. The Starfleet officers put up a good fight. Even the terminally ill McCoy... Well, he does until he gets an eyeful of that gorgeous brunette with the stunning eyes. He is literally stunned. First by her presence, then by being hit on the back of the head. He'll be fine, though. The fight ends with Kirk, Spock, and McCoy captured. The woman introduces herself. She is Natira, and this is the planet Yanada. Now let's go inside. Natira was apparently not just leading the expedition, she is in fact the leader of all of Yanada. Well, kind of. She's sort of a priestess answering to an inanimate oracle of the people. In the oracle's presence, she asks who they are and why they are there. They come in friendship, says Kirk, and that seems to wake the oracle. Learn what it means to be our enemy before you can be our friend, says the booming voice. Then the three men are sort of sci-fi electrified. Frozen. Different colors. Sparks flying everywhere. Looks like it hurts. Released, they drop to the ground unconscious as we head to commercial. Act 2. Kirk and Spock wake up in a well-furnished room. McCoy is there too, though he's not woken up yet. Kirk takes this opportunity to tell Spock of McCoy's condition. He seriously cannot keep that secret. Bones wakes up and senses something is weird. Spock is being... tender. Yeah, says Kirk, I kind of told him. The three prepare to leave the room, though Spock wonders aloud whether telling these people that they're in a ship, not on a world, would violate the Prime Directive. Kirk says, maybe, but better to change them with the truth than let them crash into a planet killing them and a few billion other people. Spock agrees. In comes a creepy old guy. I don't know, maybe it's the hair, maybe it's the toga, maybe it's the age, he's just creepy. He starts handing the men some sort of herbal medicine. He says it helps with the effects of their run-in with the Oracle. Many have felt those effects, according to the man. He identifies them as not of Yanada. Kirk says they're from outside Yanada. You know, up there, everywhere. 
The conversation's giving the old guy a headache, but he presses on. He, ow, climbed the mountains once, ow, though it is forbidden, ow. He doesn't know why it's forbidden, ow, but things, okay, really, ow, uh, aren't, as he's been told, for the world is hollow, and he has touched the sky. Okay, seriously, ow, and now he's dead. Apparently killed by the glowing red thing near the temple under his skin. Kirk gets why climbing the mountains would be forbidden. People would touch the sky and realize they weren't on a world, but in a ship. Knowledge that seems to be verboten. In walks Natira. Hey, what's up with the dead guy? Kirk tells her and she apologizes, though it's unclear to whom. She also gives a terrible eulogy. He was an old man, and old men are sometimes foolish. Doesn't mean they shouldn't be punished for their foolishness, though. That's what happens to people who sin or speak evil. Somebody will be by to pick up the body in a bit. Now, you guys hungry? Natira tells the men that the Oracle has decided that they should be treated as honored guests. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy notice that she seems to have the hots for the good doctor. And he's kind of got a thing for her, too. Tell you what, Bones, you, uh, you use her attraction to you as a distraction while Spock and I figure out how to wreck their way of life. Come on, you've seen me do it a million times. Natira says they're free to move about the planet, though she and McCoy stay behind, with McCoy playing up his not feeling well. He'd like to know how the Oracle controls everything. Natira says she can't tell him that. She's really sorry it hurt him so, though. By the way, McCoy, I am huge into you. Like, seriously, let's get married. Seriously. Eh, just think about it. We're going to a world, you know. Totally awesome place. Stay with me and we can rule it together. McCoy seems to be on board, though he should tell her he'll be dead in a year. Well then, says Natira, spend that year with me. While all of this is going on, Kirk and Spock have stumbled across the Oracle Room. Spock recognizes the writing as Fabrini. The Fabrini lived underground to protect themselves from the ravages of a dying sun. Someone must have put a bunch of Fabrini on this ship without their knowledge and sent them off to the New World. Into the Oracle Room they go, careful not to rouse the Oracle and initiate more of his reprehensible conduct. Clues here confirm that these are the Fabrini, though that's as far as they get until Natira walks in. The men hide and hear her talk with the Oracle. She's in love with McCoy and wants to marry him. Is that cool? Yeah, as long as he'll abide by our rules, worship the creators, and accept the instrument of obedience, that'll be just fine. As she's leaving, though, something triggers the sci-fi electrification of Kirk and Spock. The Oracle says they have committed sacrilege. You know what must be done. Act 3. McCoy wants to know what's going to happen to Kirk and Spock. Oh, them? They're going to die. Well, what if I ask you to let them go back to their ship? By the way, I'll stay and marry you. So, will you let my friends go? Oh, I could never tell you no. Topside, McCoy tells Kirk and Spock that he plans to stay as Natira's husband. Kirk says if they can't correct Yanada's course, they'll have to destroy it. Whatever, I'm going to be dead in a year anyway. So let me have a good year, okay? Kirk and Spock gone, McCoy has his confirmation, a quick wedding, and the insertion of the Instrument of Obedience. The Oracle says Natira should tell him what he needs to know. Turns out they're governed by a book. A book that no one has read. Heck, most people don't even know about it. They just know they have to follow the rules. Even Natira hasn't read it. She just knows that it tells them about their world and why they must eventually leave it for another one. She's not even curious about the book's contents, though. It is enough for her to know that they shall understand all once they reach their home. Back aboard the Enterprise, Kirk's being waved off the Anata thing. Seriously, leave it. Starfleet will take it from here. 
McCoy calls from Yanada, though. He tells Kirk, ow, that they may be able, ow, to get control of Yanada. He's, ow, seen the book, okay, really, ow, with all of the knowledge of the creators. He falls unconscious as his instrument of obedience heats up. Natira enters the room, and we go to commercial. Act 4. Kirk and Spock beam over to check on McCoy. Natira says she will have them killed for hurting McCoy. Spock gets to work removing McCoy's instrument of obedience, which makes Natira sad. He's no longer of the people, though Kirk says they freed him from the cruelty of the Oracle. Kirk asks McCoy where the book is, and that really freaks Natira out. She calls the guards, who seem to have stepped off for a smoke. Kirk convinces her to listen. They're not on a planet, they're on a ship, built to save a dying race. Their ship is going to hit a planet full of people, though, and this is really hurting Natira's head. Why should Ow the truth be kept from us, Ow? Why should the creators keep us in darkness, Ow? I believe only in the Oracle. <sighs> Kirk asks to remove her instrument of obedience, but she runs to the Oracle. It says she's made a mistake. She says they say they speak the truth. He says their truth, not Yanada's. But is truth not truth for all, she asks? <laughs> no, says the Oracle. Now repent. She refuses and falls unconscious. In come Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. She comes to and says she believes Kirk's story now. That's enough for McCoy. He removes her instrument of obedience. McCoy says the book is in the monolith. You know, the thing that sci-fi electrified Kirk and Spock a few minutes ago? The Oracle tells him to stay away from it, then turns the Oracle room into a furnace. Oh, it's getting hot in here. Solitary. Kirk gets the book. Spock flips to the how to control a ship nobody knows is a ship section. And we're good. Actually flies a bit like the Enterprise, according to Kirk. In the Oracle room, McCoy says he and Natira should go with Kirk and Spock to the Enterprise. She says her purpose is to stay here, though. See through the mission of the creators. McCoy says he'll stay, but she says he should go and live his life rather than stay here and die. On their way out, Spock finds a boatload of Fabrini learning, including some very advanced medical knowledge. This includes a cure for McCoy's xenopolysithemia, which they administer on the Enterprise. All better, Kirk says they could meet up with Yanada when it gets to its new planet in a little over a year. Of course, they won't. Also, the end. Ken, I'm so very glad that uh, your recap did not just devolve into a bunch of Yanada jokes. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I said Yanada. <laughs> yeah, Yonada. <laughs> yeah, Yonada is so hollow. <laughs> right. I don't even know. That's that's probably bad. It didn't even occur to me. Oh man, where were you when I was writing that? See, I, uh, I, I was I, I was here in the rest of the world, which is known as Hollywood. Let's, um, let's play the dozens. Maybe you know yeah. we might get the computer to do that for us. <laughs> right, right. Uh, by the way, uh, Darren Five was not played by uh, Dick York or Dick Sargent. Uh, so those were, in fact, Darren One and Two. Yeah, it wasn't Don't even played play by Darren Five. Wasn't even played by Will Ferrell. No, although you know, <laughs> no. by the time you get to uh, the twenty third century, mm -hmm. we may be up to our fifth Darren by then. Yeah, I would hope so. I, I would hope that it would just keep going, you know. <laughs> at least one Darren per century. Yeah. <laughs> there should be at least one. You, yeah. you would think so. I'm glad they had all those swords left over from last week, uh, Day of the Dove. You know, it's like, hey, if we're going to have swords, we might as well give them to somebody to use. So uh, we'll arm everybody Yonata with swords. That was good. Um, 
I also was uh, – I, I, I like the handling of McCoy discovering that he has a terminal illness. Um, and I think had this been a different show, they would have played out that disease much longer. But for me, I felt like it was the first time on Star Trek where we saw something – sort of emotionally affect a crew member out of the out of the top three like that okay emotionally because well, yeah yeah uh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. well no you're not wrong about yeah. that i mean i i thought mm-hmm. the whole thing we do where we check each other's notes like about five minutes beforehand <laughs> i thought you had said that nothing had actually affected somebody before and i was like well you know unless you don't include the deadly years and then the time that kirk you know literally physically broke up and i, I think i might argue that emotionally right. kirk has been affected by a couple of things like that Mm-hmm. But I mean, uh, but, like uh, the end of um, oh, uh, you're talking about the him walking down the hall after the doomed wedding, after the doomsday machine, all all, all that kind of yeah. The, I guess although yeah. I, I was really just even talking about the physical, like the physical ailments, like we see Kirk really go mm-hmm. through the ringer um, during the Enemy Within, honestly. Yeah, but. It is different because you're right. It's uh, the center of this episode is not the fact that McCoy is is dying, although it certainly does play a large part of it. I will say, yeah, there is something uh, more real about it with McCoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's quite possible that it's the big diagnosable medical name that we might hear something like it in real life. I mean, those are actually scarier. Yeah. Like if Spock comes in and says, "We're all getting old very fast." You're like, oh, this is goofy science fiction. Okay, let's see how they handle this. But, you know, if somebody walks into a room and says, you have xenopolysithemia or however it's pronounced. I mean, that's that's Mm -hmm. something that you you could imagine that you could actually hear at a doctor's office. And it doesn't mean anything to you except you're going to die. You know, I mean, you you, you Mm -hmm, might eventually mm -hmm. go back and learn more about it. But there is something sort of scarier about, you know. It's turning everybody into bats. <laughs> you know, there's something scarier about using something that a real doctor might really say to somebody that might really mean something bad. The other thing that's huge about it in this episode is DeForest Kelly is so often called upon to act big in the original yeah. series. You know, like, ah, we got to do this. We got to get out of here. Why are you being such a jerk? You know, right. and, and in this one, it's just it's just like a look on his face. It's just I mean, there's a he I mean, this is a guy who has just been delivered some really bad news. You know, yeah. and it's played great when when Bones wakes up and Spock puts his hand on his shoulder. There's so much said without saying a thing mm-hmm. in that. Um, mm-hmm. It's neat when he gets to act small because there's honestly more acting there than when he's, you know, flailing his arms around and, and you know, doing right. metaphors. And there was a similar moment, actually, between Spock and McCoy when Spock compliments McCoy's ingenuity and Spectre of the Gun. Mm. Total gem of a moment because, I mean, Spock is, is doing his, you know, matter, matter of fact thing, but he is honestly complimenting McCoy. Mm-hmm. But he says to him, you know, basically just, you know, given everything that we have here, your, your ingenuity is to be commended. And, right. and in another script, that would have been, why, Mr. Spock, I believe you just gave me a compliment, you know? And, <laughs> right. And, and in that episode, it was just McCoy just, you know, it, it hits him. And he just kind of smiles a tiny bit and goes back to his thing. And same yeah. same thing here. It's, it's really a it's it's great when he gets to uh, when he gets to have those little gem moments because they really do stick with you. Probably because he spends so much of the uh, so much of the series yelling. Right. Well, I think that's why it stood out to me. I, I just feel like it's not until we get later into Star Trek that we see, well, real things like people aging or grappling with disease. You know, the, the other things we've seen, like the aging, the rapid aging, it, it was a sort of the sci-fi premise of the week. Right. And we're going to overcome it for everybody and then we'll be done. Right. 
you know. Um, but, but this really had some emotional weight to it, and it was played very well. Um, by the way, I'm glad that you mentioned this in your recap, because uh, I wondered if Kirk had any hesitation about uh, asking McCoy to seduce Natira. You know, like, hey, uh, if it doesn't go well for you, let me know. I'll be here. I could step in yeah, I, if you need me to. I, I love that. <laughs> you know? He was even, I mean, he was even like, you know, oh, I think Natira's taste is questionable, but, you know, it'll, <laughs> right. it'll work fine, yeah. you know. Yeah. Distract yeah. her with your masculine wiles while we go off and... Uh, and wreck everything for them or save them, yes. you know, whichever, whichever it happens whichever. to be this week. I haven't read that far ahead in the script. says Shatner, <laughs> are we, are we doing good or bad this time? Well, whatever. Right, right. Well, well I, either way, they, they kind of, they, they lead you to that because they have the instrument of obedience. <laughs> and um, also my hat is off to you for, uh, you know, refraining from turning that into just a, a terrible joke. Yeah, well... Which we could still do nah, <laughs> before the end of the show. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it didn't quite measure up to the, uh, the, the Gamesters of Triskelion for me as far as, mm. as, far as the mm-hmm. uh, you know, 50 shades of whatever color we're talking about. <laughs> I mean, just right. saying the words instrument of obedience. I mean, I'm actually more interested in, for something that has so much power, very easy to yeah. install and very easy to remove. Mm-hmm. And, and also really tiny. Like so yeah. tiny that that spot holds up the thing that it's theoretically on the end of, and I guess right. we're given to understand that there's something there because he looks at it approvingly, like ah, there it is. But there's actually nothing there. But you just can't even see. Yeah. It. Yeah. So I got Yeah. Oh, it's invisible too. I, I <laughs> unless it needs to be read. You okay. see also uh, whatever that thing was that was floating around the Enterprise last week. Um, <laughs> I will say I'm glad that Yanada is not going to crash into Darren Five now. Mm-hmm. But uh, the new planet it's going to. Is it going to land? Because <laughs> right. we're, not, we're not really given to understand. I mean, so, like, is it going to go into orbit? I mean, was that part of the problem? Not only that it was going to an inhabited planet, but that it was going to crash into an inhabited planet? Or, or is it now going to yes. hit a planet? And the good news is it's just going to kill the people of Yanada rather than the people of Yanada right. and, you know, a few billion people down below. Right. Um, also, I'm curious how it happens that the planet that they're supposed to be going to is exactly the same distance from where they are now as Darren 5. Because that mm. was the thing. It was mm. going to hit Darren 5 in 390 days, and then they correct its course and come to find out it's going to get to where it's supposed to go in 390 days. And then finally, the last question I have is, can we call their new homeworld either Maroon 5, Babylon 5, or the Jackson 5? <laughs> I am a fan of the idea of Yanata jokes. Sadly, all of the Yanata jokes I can come up with would get this transmission panned in all but the CDS backwater worlds of the Federation. In the long history of Kirk going around doing things like violating the Prime Directive to uh, either or uh, help a society or completely uh, pull the carpet out from under it, Mm -hmm. Um, it seems like in this one, you know, they would violate it if they tell these people that they are actually on a spaceship and they explain what's going on. I would say, though, I, I think Kirk has pretty good justification. His justification to Spock is if we don't, we will uh, either kill everybody on this asteroid spaceship or we will kill everybody on Darren 5 or all of the above. 
So no matter what happens, you know, if we do nothing, somebody's going to die. And, and that is probably what they do not want. It seems like this spaceship was built to ensure the survival of this race. So I'd say that in terms of things that are used to violate the prime directive, um, not letting people die because of an accident seems like a pretty good, pretty good justification. Uh, well, your take on that? Well, not letting other people die is. I mm-hmm. mean, because Darren 5, I, I don't know, Starfleet gets really weird, right? Yeah. About, um, about the Prime Directive. I would say letting the people on Darren 5 die is probably not cool. Mm-hmm. And so that might be a good reason to go ahead and violate the Prime Directive. I guess I don't understand, though, why we didn't think about... Okay, there was actually another way to do this, it seems to me. Gas everybody on Yanada. Mm. I mean, just, just knock everybody out on Yanada. Or do like mm-hmm. a wide dispersion, you know, stun like they did in um, a piece oh, of the action. piece of the action, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, send somebody in to fix what they need to fix and then bring them out. And then the people of Yanada are none the wiser. They're not going to be late to their planet as far as they know because the Oracle won't even tell them when they're supposed to get there. It's just supposed to be soon. Right. I mean, which and all of this is goofy. All of this is goofy, you know, sci-fi retcon. Like, why didn't they just do this? Why didn't they just take yeah, the Galileo yeah, yeah. down, you know, <laughs> to this planet that they could have taken the Galileo down to? Well, because right. to move the story along, they don't need to. Yeah. Or they need to not, as a matter of fact. To move this right. story the way the story needs to go, they have to violate the Prime Directive. Um, they, of course, did not have to violate the Prime Directive, though. They're going to just beam somebody in, you know, behind the Oracle. Right. <laughs> I love the yeah. fact that, I mean, that so, so their, their, their holy book of knowledge, their book of knowledge so holy that they can't even check it out, is an owner's manual. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's like, yeah. that's like that thing that's in the, in the, uh, you know, in the glove box of my, uh, 2003 Mazda, whatever. <laughs> right. You know, it's just like, wait, where, how do yeah. I change the tires on this planet? Yeah. In the event of hitting a planet, please do this. Yeah. Is it indexed? Yes. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, Kirk speaks uh, perfect Fabrini. Right. Or Spock does. Well, and, Spock does. Uh, they just, yeah, you just go right into it and go, oh, yeah, here, here's the button to push. Here's exactly. Yeah. yeah. And the problem, the whole thing with it, is it indexed? I mean, so what do you look up at that point? Right. Right. Welcome, uh, welcome steering. to your, Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so your autopilot calibration is a little off. but but they have a lot to learn before they even get to that it it would be like getting in a car opening glove box getting out the manual and going wait i'm in a car (laughs) 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 that's an excellent point they actually have longer to go until they get to that point the speaking of which that that brought me back to kind of a, a central question about this episode is it actually a good idea to have people on a ship and not know that they're on a ship what is the point because there's all these problems that they – besides hitting a planet, you've got food, you've got air, you've got energy, you've, you've got engines that can break down, you've got all this. So what does the deception actually solve? Because um, I, I go back to thinking about Landrew. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought you always made a, a good case for the idea that Landrew, even if that whole system went haywire, Landrew was there for a reason – and that was to kind of keep this society from completely tearing itself apart. Mm-hmm. So I have to assume that the Oracle is there as some kind of a power structure to solve a problem 
that would have otherwise been worse than just having a crew maintaining their own ship, you know? Um, I actually found myself thinking a bit about uh, Krypton mm. in this. There were a number of people in the various tellings of the Superman origin story. I mean, basically what it tends to come down to most often is Jarrell thought the planet was going to blow up. And mm-hmm. most everybody else didn't. And so they forbid Jarrell from from doing anything. And he broke their rules and, you know, sent his son off to Earth. But who cares? The planet's going to blow up anyway. So, yeah, punish mm-hmm. me. Bring it. Because seriously, nothing that you do is going to be worse than when this planet is engulfed by our sun. Um, mm-hmm. And that's kind of that's kind of what's actually happening, it seems to me, with these guys. It's possible that the reason to fool them is because, I mean, think about what the Fabrini did. Their son's going crazy. They didn't spend time trying to figure out how to get off the planet. They 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 burrowed down. I mean, yeah. Sp- Spock says that they were a race of people who went underground, you know, because they couldn't live on the surface of their planet anymore. And we know that that's because of the problems with their son, right? Right. These are not people who are given to, well, let's get out of here. And so, I mean, it's quite possible. And again, this is total geek speak. I mean, but it's quite, <laughs> it's quite possible that they had to secretly put them on this ship to send them out because that's not the Fabrini way. So the Fabrini, you know, analog to Jarrell may have said, okay, but seriously, we're going to die here. So let's send some people and maybe we just don't tell them. <laughs> That's interesting because then those Fabrini who are moved over secretively to the uh, spaceship asteroid, they're, they're walking on a corridor when they go, hmm, this, this is a new corridor. Hey, wait, how do I get back to that old corridor that was <laughs> in the underground of Fabrini where, where my dog was and uh, – <laughs> Where my, you know, 10th grade teacher okay, so maybe, was. So maybe it was the Fabrini orphanage. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Ah, maybe. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I find that one to be a very hard thing to swallow. Like, uh, I, we've dealt with this idea before in Star Trek where the idea of kind of using uh, uh, knowledge or a lack of knowledge to exert power but it, it just seemed like the Oracle wasn't there for power. It, it was just more like status quo. Like we, we just have to protect the knowledge that this is a spaceship against all other things. And if you even think about it, we will punish you. Yeah. You know, and, and, and it's interesting because then everybody becomes so docile at that point that no one bothered to send out an expedition to see if there was more to their world knowledge was forbidden and that one old man who died he who dared to think about it too hard you know he he, he might have been the one but um but, but then as you as you so well pointed out and the just sort of swept that under the carpet that was another dead old guy yeah you well, know <laughs> here's the thing though i mean you're dealing with what two days in, mm-hmm. in this 10,000-year-old mm-hmm. society. And it's obviously older than 10,000 years because somebody put them in Yanada, but right. they've been on Yanada for 10,000 years. So, right. yes, there was one guy, but, I mean, he's just one person that we came across. Also, we do know, very lucky for them to have beamed down right near the leader of Yanada. I mean, we do yeah. know that Yanada is 200 miles in diameter. Right. So we're not seeing everybody. Sure. We're, we're only seeing some people. Uh, again, amazing stroke of luck that they happened to land at the Capitol. <laughs> yeah, right. land right near the Oracle. That's, that's, that's a fine stroke of luck there. But I yeah. mean, we don't, I mean, you know, you can say nobody's ever done this before. Well, no, we don't know. It's been 10,000 years. It doesn't happen mm-hmm. that often though. You're right. People have been sort of, well, I mean, they do have the, they do have the, uh, the instrument of obedience. Yeah. And then they die Then they get punished and then they die. Well, if they, so. if, if they keep at it, 
Yeah, yeah. If they don't obey. Right. I'm not saying that's good. I'm just saying, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, that's the way it works. people yeah. buy shock collars and choke collars for their dogs and they're not shocking and choking their dogs forever. And I don't I don't yeah. like them. I don't agree with them. I don't do them. But I know people who do. And, you know, the dog is not getting shocked or choked every day. The dog is getting shocked and choked once or twice before the dog is like, right. ah, you know, it would be better not. Right. So, I mean, you know, they die if they if they die, if they persist, which is it's, you know, a fine way to keep control. But it's it's probably not a real way to run. Um anything close to civilization. Uh, unless you're one of the gamesters of Triskelion and then it's shock collars all day long. Well, at that yeah. point, it's all about the Quatlos. So, I mean, <laughs> right. you, you get a whole... Well, I joke about that. I was going to say you get a whole different, you know, a whole different motivation going there, but you really don't have a whole different motivation going there. I mean, it is just about power and maintenance of power, maintenance of the status quo. Mm-hmm. As you said a moment ago, <sighs> this is a weird... Wow, I'm going to be the one defending Mussolini this time. Look at this. Watch, watch, <laughs> oh, no. watch oh, what's no. about to happen. No. Oh, I mean, okay, so let's say that their society is going to break down if they do find out that they're on a ship. Let's say that that drives them mad. Let's say that they are hobbits who feel like they have to be living underground on the planet that they think they're on. And so, I mean, this revelation is going to happen when they get to another planet. But the good news is it's another planet that could always, you know, go down and bury themselves at that point. Do I honestly think that this guy's uh, totalitarianism is justified? No. I do, though, think that... The, I love the fact that um, Narita... Is that her name? Natira, excuse me. Natira, yeah. That Natira is like, no, no, this is going to be great. I'm going to guide everybody. Okay, I'm glad she's hip to it now and she's okay with it. Mm-hmm. She does have a whole society that's going to have to be brought on. A whole society that has lived with this religious fervor, that has lived with this fundamentalist idea that we don't, we don't think about why, why there's a shadow on the sky, you know, at this right. point. Right. Why I can't climb the mountain. We don't think about those things. Um, I mean, freeing your mind, do the whole, there's a lot of matrix in this episode, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, the whole freeing your mind thing, I mean, there were people who chose to stay in the matrix. And if we go ahead and do the, as they might be giants, puts it, the allegory of the people in the cave by the Greek guy. I mean, you know, once you realize that that what you're seeing outside the cave is actually just a shadow of something that's much smaller and you go ahead and you get out of the cave, right? You come back and try to tell people, hey, you can leave the cave and they're going to want to kill you. I mean, there's a, yeah. there's a, there's a lot of um, – they're actually in a very precarious position, more so, I think, after the crew of the Enterprise leaves than when the crew of the Enterprise got there, except for the part where they're going to crash onto a planet of 4 billion people and kill them. Hey, I, I'm just saying that in 10,000 years, somebody at some point had to get to the top of a mountain and change one of the light bulbs in their sky. <laughs> Reminded me also of the Truman Show. Yeah. Remember? Yeah, the, I thought about that too, very much so. Yeah, yeah. When, when he yeah. sails off onto the horizon and then his ship ends up mm-hmm. breaking the wall of the horizon. Yeah. Yeah. It was very cool. Very, very cool. Um, you know, one of the lines that stood out to me, uh, thinking about the whole structure that the Oracle has set up, you know, uh, those who speak evil shall be punished. I mean, this is a society where thought crime is punishable. It's not just people who actually dare to climb the mountain and go find out what's hanging behind the curtain in the studio. Uh, their curiosity is punishable. Their, their desire to want to know is punishable. Mm-hmm. And if you do think too hard about it, you know, anybody who would dare to think uh, too hard about not only is there anything beyond these walls, but is there a universe? Is there anything beyond this? 
I got the impression that they had maybe a little bit of an idea that, okay, there is such a thing as a spaceship. There, there is such a thing as people from another world. But by their understanding, that, that was their entire world. They're just having to live on a tiny, tiny planet with, uh, with an orange backlit sky, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> I, I, <laughs> well, I mean, but, but it, I, it goes back to the same thing that we were just talking about a moment ago, mm-hmm. though. I mean, this I mean, that's a control mechanism. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. trying to keep everything exactly as it is. I think the question you have to ask yourself is why is everything being kept exactly as it is? Or maybe you don't yeah. have to ask yourself that question. Maybe. OK, it's sort of like the whole I would you know burn this village to save it thing. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. controlling these people into making sure that this ship stays on its course, that nothing gets, you know, that nothing gets messed up in the little society that they have until they can go and be this bigger society or this better society or just this freer society on this other planet. Is that worth keeping them in control? Well, that's the thing. It seems like you go through a whole lot of not freedom in order to achieve that thing that would be considered freedom. I, I think maybe the only way I can look at it is this sort of like uh, this is a programming glitch. You know, sort of like Landrew, the Oracle, maybe over that 10,000 years has uh, misunderstood its programming. Um, and, and that's why it's so dogmatic, uh, for, for lack of a better word, uh, of how this place is run. Wait a minute. You think the Oracle misunderstood? No, I, what I'm saying is that I, I think the enforcement of everything is uh, maybe it could be chalked up to a programming glitch. Because, again, I, I'm still struggling with the, this idea of the logic of keeping everybody in the dark when, when there are practical things that need to get done. You know? Oh, come on. You're not really in the dark <laughs> about that, though, are you? You know why that's happening. Do I know why the Oracle is keeping them in the dark? Yeah. Well, to maintain the control of the, Absolutely. Uh, of the society. Yeah. Absolutely. It's the ease of control. I mean, if you're uh, – the question that you're asking is, is it right, right? And well, I, think I, we bo- I think we both know what the answer is. Uh, I think we do too. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, don't, I mean don't, don't try to justify even, – even in jest, try to justify, you know, what the Oracle is doing. You can certainly say that there are reasons why you do it. There mm. are absolutely reasons why you do it, but does that make it right? And I think that's, I mean, and this is an issue that we, you and I have come across in this show a million times where sure. one of us will bring something up that, you know, inevitably brings hate mail. <laughs> 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 there, there are things, there are ways that people should be. There are ways that people should be. Yes, what Jarell of, of the planet Fabrini should have done was found the five people or the 10 people or the 15 people and said, listen, this is seriously going to happen. So you need to come with us. And if you're not going to come with us, then fine. I'm going to go out and explore by myself. I mean, whatever's going to happen, I mean, no, these people should not be, you know, not only kidnapped for all intents and purposes onto this ship, but then lied to about where they are and forced to not even think about anything to the point of death so that one day maybe they could be happy. No, I mean, that's, that, that's, an, absolutely, that's an absolutely terrible idea. But I, I, yeah. but I do believe that the Oracle was working exactly the way the Oracle was designed to work. Hmm. I mean, he's holding up, you know pseudo-religious stuff and saying, yeah. if you think about it any differently, then you will die. Um, it, it, I mean, it, it, no, there's no freedom of thought here so that they can get to whatever the next thing is. And then, yeah. you know, is that right? I, I think you and I would say, no, it's not. 
Well, it's very much like a, a cult-like design to the way this this whole thing works. You know, yes. There's the dissociation from the peer group, from the old peer group, and uh, she literally has McCoy cut off from the others and has the instrument of obedience, the total obedience to the uh, cult leader, the, the oracle in this case. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. Kirk says that he freed McCoy from the cruelty of the oracle and the tira can't take it you know uh, because it, it's very hard to argue rationally with somebody who came to their position for irrational reasons but i i, I think that even in this case Natira's position is rational because it's the only position that she has it's the only information she has ever been given it's total control and it, it, it's interesting the the parallel that I would have to you know you know pick pick your favorite cult over the last fifty years <laughs> you know they they kind of <laughs> behave right. the same way and they, and then they and then they get people to grow up inside that cult so that there is no outside information at all you know do you have a favorite cult from the last fifty years by the way you know it's so hard to pick there are just so many okay you know? <laughs> maybe, maybe we shouldn't record this part. Yeah, right. I, I think I don't want that kind of hate mail either or a cease and desist. <laughs> probably, you know? probably, probably not. Hey, yeah. I did have a question. I mean, uh, aside from the power uh, structure aspect of mm-hmm. this, aside from the thought control or the, you know, be afraid to think outside the box control, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I did wonder if Yanata, um was maybe a stand-in for where we were in the 1960s, just physically Yanata was. Mm-hmm. It is a world as far as they know, but it is a small world. Mm-hmm. Um, Yanada, according to Spock, is atomic, it's archaic, it's leaving debris and hard radiation in its wake. And I kind of wondered if, if, if on some level in the writing that wasn't a little bit of a, yeah, you know, we're great, we're starting to get computers now, which is awesome, and we're starting to go to space on the regular, which is awesome, and we've got nuclear energy, and eh, maybe that's awesome, maybe it's not. We're getting there, okay? But, but we're not low-impact campers at this point. And and maybe we should think about, you know, great, I love what we got right now. Let's, let's talk about maybe cleaning it up just a tiny bit. Let's talk about maybe making it just a little bit better as we go forward. Yes. No, it's awesome. Keep your nuclear energy. That's great. Yeah, we got to get out in space. It's totally awesome. Let's let's keep tweaking a bit, though. Because, I mean, there's, there's nothing about Yanada that's not awesome as far as a design, as far as, as, far as this thing of, like, well, of course I can transplant a society. I need, uh, I need like a ship that looks like a meteor so that nobody bothers it from the outside, right? <laughs> right it's right. got to be able to support enough people to populate a planet for over 10,000 years. It's got to have some defensive capability, and it's got to it's steer, <laughs> you know? This is an awesome thing, but it's atomic, it's archaic, it's leaving debris and hard radiation in its wake. It's kind of where we are. It feels to me. I mean, we can go out into space, but we're leaving a bunch of crap in space. And it yeah. takes a ridiculous amount of, of fuel to get into space. It's awesome that we're doing that. And we should keep doing that. We should also keep working on maybe ways to make that safer. And this is both a this could be both a pro-nuke and anti-nuke thing as well. Nuclear yeah. power nuclear power has a lot of really great things about it. Sadly, yeah. there are some things about it that are not so great. Does that mean we never do that? Maybe, maybe not. That's for future generations to decide. Right now, though, there is no harm in trying to make it safer and better. Um, There's no harm in trying to make wind more feasible for a greater number of people. There's no harm in trying to figure out how to get, you know, five miles more per gallon from the fossil fuels. Right. 
sure. where we are now is neat. We can do better. And that's kind of what I felt like that's kind of what I felt like Spock was seeing when he was looking at Yanada. It's like, hey, neat, look what they can do. Or look what they could do ten thousand years ago. And right. it's right. kinda messy though, but you know, right. still it's kind of a neat thing. Oh man, you know, see, I, I keep going back to this idea though. It's ten thousand years of being able to do nothing except live on this asteroid planet well, now, hold on. spaceship. I am know? talking I am talking about the physical ship Yanada. I'm yeah. not. I'm not talking about yeah. the society. I'm not talking about the people on it. I'm not even talking no, about know. the people who know, designed it, except for their engineering acumen. Right. <laughs> right. All right. Yes. All right. Yes. Indeed. Now, now, if you want to go back to arguing about whether or not their society was as screwed up as you and I think their society was, it's totally screwed up. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, you know, here's the thing. I, I thought about. Um, we were a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about paradise syndrome and Salish at the end of that. Uh, Trying to reveal to the others in his tribe that Kirok mm-hmm. is no god and he's trying to tell them the truth. But the truth is something that even he didn't know, which is that the obelisk is uh, alien technology designed to repel things that would otherwise destroy them. And, um, you, you know, you, you kind of uh, took umbrage uh, with the idea of Salish being the I told you so guy. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I, I was on board with you there for a bit, you know, up to a point, I think, because what, what does it really accomplish when you've got literally minutes on the clock right. before an asteroid destroys your planet? I think this episode makes a stronger, stronger argument for the truth. And, you know, we'll put that in quotes, however you want to accept that. Um, I don't think you have to put the truth in quotes this time, because the truth is everybody on Yanada is going to die and everybody on Darren 5 is going to die. And they are literally on a spaceship. You know, right. the, the things that Kirk is revealing are literal truth. Literal yeah. truths, right. Physical truths, truths yeah, that yeah. you can, truths that you can, well, eventually give it 390 days. Sure, sure. There's your proof. The proof will be undeniable. Uh, There's there's a difference, though. You, and I don't mean you personally, you as Salish or Salish as Salish, standing there and saying, you know, there is no God. Or there is a God, but it's not that guy. That doesn't Mm -hmm. doesn't matter. I mean, Mm -hmm. unless, unless you're using your God to, you know, crash a small planet into a large planet... Or unless you're using your God to kill somebody, or unless you're using your God to keep somebody down in ways that are that you can actually, you know, if you want to go sit in the corner and believe in your God, go sit in the corner and believe in your God. And 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 it feels to me like that's that's what Salish was trying to stop. And that was just because before everybody died, he wanted them to know that he was right. Right. That's a, there's a huge difference there. Now again. Did they have to reveal to the people of Yanada that the Oracle was nothing more than a computer? Did they have to reveal that, you know, their society was kind of screwed up because they're actually on a spaceship? To make this story work, yes, they did. But, of course, they could have just got, given them all knockout gas and fixed it and let them go on their way. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I'm, I'm more in favor of them understanding their their situation. Yes, I'm very, uh, it, it, it's I, I know an you are. <laughs> yeah, because that's me. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an interesting moment, though. You know, Kirk, uh, first of all, if somebody had come to you as a total stranger and said, no, really, I'm from the spaceship up in the sky and I'm about to drop the truth on you, all of us would say you're insane. Right. You know, but, but we as the audience, knowing the truth of the, of the premise of the show – we get to watch this interesting back and forth that she's more interested in keeping her belief 
despite his protestation, which is about the truth, you know, um, and Kirk didn't actually have to reveal any evidence, you know, he, he didn't have to like beam her up and say, no, seriously, this is my spaceship. There's your asteroid ship out there. Or here, let me take you into the engine room. He doesn't actually have to do anything. He just kind of argues her out of it. But something in her changes, something in her clicks. And she has that great line, it is truth, not truth for all. And and there, as you say, that's where we take the quotation marks off of truth. And we just say that literal, factual truth is something that is equal for everybody. Um, so I, I thought that was, you know, the strongest, even if it is just the hit you over the head with the, the premise of the episode here. Um, I thought that was the, the strongest message. And to say it kind of, it flies in the face of the negative connotation of, um, and I'll bring it back to a religious thing uh, about, you know, eating the fruit of knowledge. This is saying, well, you have to have knowledge to, to save yourself, (laughs) you know, to, to move forward, to be able to accomplish anything and hopefully not let your planet spaceship asteroid die in the process. Time now for the guys to do a musical number. Either that or wrap up the show. I wonder which they'll choose to do this week. It is that time, for the show is nearly over and we are just those guys. We try to figure out the messages, morals, and meanings of each episode of Star Trek that we watch and try to decide whether or not the episode stands the test of time. Uh, curious, John, do you feel that this episode holds up as an episode of Star Trek? I, you know, I read somewhere that um, I, I, can't, I, I can't remember who exactly to attribute this to, but it, it was said that what this episode really needed was a rewrite by Gene Roddenberry. You know, we, we know that he was kind of in absentia for a lot of this season um but maybe just a a little more attention on this particular one really would have brought this one up into the stratosphere of the great episodes um here are the things that i think are really strong about it this is a great mccoy episode Mm -hmm. um as we mentioned before he's so good in it and the idea of him playing up that uh the the emotional impact of the disease um the reality of him wanting to stay behind because he doesn't have to live for his career anymore. You know, this seems like a, a pretty okay option uh, to, to live out his final year. And he makes all of that with some of the hard sci-fi concepts that we get here, the generational ship, um, the, the computer that is running the society, I, you know, for all those reasons. Yes. Um, I really feel like it, it holds up. It may not reach the level of the greatest of Star Trek, but I think it's very good. There are a few little things that I felt like, uh, maybe could have changed. Um, <laughs> the end, where Kirk and Spock just go like, oh, look, here's all the assembled <laughs> medical knowledge of the Fabrini for 10,000 years. Let's get that. Right. <laughs> you know, um, I felt like there would have been more powerful, more dramatic, and more believable ways to make that happen. I think it would have been dramatically more significant if Natira had been the one to give medical knowledge to them. Um, 
you know, little things like that, that I just think from a storytelling yeah. perspective uh, w- would have been better. But overall, um, I really quite like this one a lot. The problem is Natira can't give them the uh, medical knowledge, though, because she doesn't know that they have it. And remember, that was back sort of behind the Oracle. That was back in the control room. That's that's the stuff that's going to help them when they get to where they're going. True, true. But I, I do think that, and again, we're, we're just retconning the hell out of this. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but I do think that there is something to be said that for these people to stay alive for 10,000 years, even if they don't understand the you know, atomic engine running their ship or that they're on a ship at all. They have some medical knowledge or maybe the, for her, there's additional knowledge that comes from revealing this whole thing. It, it could have been done, but I understand why they didn't. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm, I'm with you on a lot of what you say. I mean, the two biggest problems of this episode to me are how quickly they tie up the things in the end. So she yeah. asks McCoy to marry her. When she doesn't know that he's going to be dead in a year. Right. And then when she does know that he's going to be dead in a year, she's like, well, then I'm going to spend that year with you. Mm. And then when she gets her instrument of obedience out, she's like, eh, why don't you go back to the Enterprise? You know what I mean? <laughs> right. and, and, and it's not and, – and, and there wasn't anything about that. It's just that, you know, oh, what, what are we up to? Uh, minute 47 of this 50-minute show? Yeah, we mm. need to wrap up that relationship. Yeah. And, that, and that's pretty much it. And the same thing happens with McCoy's – um, Triscodecophobia or whatever it was he had. I've already forgotten it. It's not in front of me. His blood disease that he had. Um, right. He, uh, you know, it, that that's uh, that wraps up way too fast and way too quick. But again, it's episodic television. It's 1968. There's no such thing as a as a as a story arc. I mean, you think about something like that in the hands of somebody like a Joss Whedon or or you yeah. know, I mean, things. I mean, things happened in Buffy, and I keep going back to that. But that honestly, seriously, if you've never watched Buffy. Do it, and I and I understand why you haven't because I didn't for years. But but really, yeah. just do. Um, stuff will happen, and then two seasons later, something will trigger something that had to do with what happened two seasons before, and it'll send a character in a Joss Whedon tale off on a completely different track. Like even if even if it doesn't change the adventure, it just you know it affects them mentally. See that's cool, you know. I, that's I incredibly their relationship, cool. Their relationship, uh, the the McCoy and Atira relationship, was heartbreaking. Yes. And and like you said, like you pointed out, Kirk basically says, "Oh, maybe in a year you can go meet up with her again." Well, we're not going to do that. Right. Too bad. But <laughs> I, I, I would have, I would have loved for that to happen. Or you know, or even like in the next four weeks, see Bones still dealing with the fact that he thought he was going to be dead. I mean, yeah. and this, yeah, and this yeah, again, yeah. is the difference between television in the 1960s and television today. Well, television yeah. in the 1960s that wasn't a daytime soap opera. I mean, we had right. General Hospital at the time, but right. as far as as far as you know, primetime television, uh, you, as you as you mentioned earlier, this is something that would have been drawn out a lot longer. It actually probably would have been a couple of weeks of Bones thinking he was going to be dead, and then something happened where he finds out he's not going to, and then still a few weeks of dealing with that. Because who yeah. knows what kind of decisions he would have made, you know, in that time when he's like, I got one year. Got to right. start writing a bunch of apology notes to people for all the things I said <laughs> and all the things I did, you know, once I find out not. All of that no, no, aside, it, it, though, uh-huh. I'm sorry. The other thing, by the way, because so the ending is the first thing that bothers me. Yeah. The uh, the wardrobe is the other one <laughs> <laughs> on the planet, the, the plaid and the whatever that, that kind of takes me out of it. Those that's a joke. 
that and the pointy hat. That yeah. and the pointy hat yeah, with the buttons on it. I don't know what that yeah. was like. It was like a rotary phone on top of their hat. Um, <laughs> I think this episode does hold up. Yeah, could it have been tighter? Sure. Could it have been zippier? Yes. Uh, could it have been and the children shall lead? Yes. So really, I'm grateful. I was going to say that uh, to your note that somebody should be writing uh, an apology note. I think actually Kirk is the only one who needs to be writing an apology note in this to McCoy. I'm sorry I told Spock. I'm sorry I told Starfleet. <laughs> you don't with that. I know. I yeah. know. Maybe we could keep this between us. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, g- g- give me the 90 seconds it takes us to get through the credits and get back to me on that. All right. <laughs> right. Uh, let's talk about the message here. What, yeah. uh, what's going on for you? Oh, well, you know, not having blind faith, not just believing what you're told just because you're told it, not just assuming that somebody who's an authority is actually the person who knows everything. I mean, mm-hmm. it's and honestly, my notes were even more sparse this week than they normally are because the the messages seem so obvious that I kind of didn't want to bother writing them down. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like when you said, so so do you think there's something going on with the programming um with um with the Oracle, if we were in the same room, I'd have either thrown something at you or hit you on the head with no, something soft. No, no. Only because, I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no question in this episode, I mean, what the message is. It doesn't seem to me. I yeah. mean, just the, the blind obedience yeah. is bad and, and not being allowed to think or not taking time to think. And it's bad, you know, on the part of the people who don't bother to, um, although you kind of can't blame these people because they literally have a thing in their head that will make their head um, quit. Mm-hmm. If they do mm-hmm. question, so I mean, it really is just sort of a, it really is just sort of an indictment of any government that won't let you think out of out of the box, which could be a certain amount of jingoism, or it could be a certain amount of patriotism. Um, mm-hmm. It could also just as easily be an indictment of any church that won't let you, you know, wonder about yeah. the divinity of the particular deity or deities that your church worships. Um, I mean, it's 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 those feel like fairly textbook. <laughs> well, yeah, they, they are text, they're, they're textbook, but I think they're done well. Yes. You know? I mean, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There, there's so much here about faith and not questioning it. And Kirk, kind of one of the traits that, that I like and, and really identify with in Kirk is valuing truth over convenience, you know. Um, and, and Atira, early on, she expresses her desire for truth. She says to McCoy, I hope you men of space hold truth as dear as we do, although she's about to really get woken up about what that truth means. Um, it's almost like there's something inherent in the human condition for learning truth, even if our powers of cognitive dissonance overpower it very often. You know, the, the, there's some way the truth will sneak through, even if we try to shut it out. Um, and, and of course, you know, there's this message that we've seen again about, you know, abusing truth to maintain power, uh, as the Oracle does. Um, and I, I think as sort of a bigger picture thing here, it, it's sort of like saying that the world, the universe is bigger than our tiny little section of it. You know, we benefit ourselves by shaking off dogma and seeing what's out there, even if that truth is scary. Um, as I have so often done, and and I apologize for making you sit through it again, I, there's a great Carl Sagan quote that um, I think I identified with this episode. He said, the truth may be puzzling, 
It may take some work to grapple with. It may be counterintuitive. It may contradict deeply held prejudices. It may not be consonant with what we desperately want to be true, but our preferences do not determine what's true. And that that's sort of like the smack over the head moment for the uh, the people of Yonada. And by the way, just to go back to our question about the episode holding up and, and the shame that we don't get to revisit any of this storyline, mm-hmm. I have to say that I think Natira is one of the better female characters that we've had as a guest star um, on Star Trek simply because she has a nice big character arc. Yeah. She gets to have a relationship and she's a leader, first of all, yeah. um, and she gets to learn something. She gets to come away from this whole experience with a new perspective. And that's something that, unfortunately, for the show regulars, doesn't get to happen from week to week. Or at least they don't get to carry that over from week to week. Uh, but this would have been really cool to revisit her and see, okay, ha- how's that working out for you now that you understand truth versus belief? <laughs> Where are we now? That would have been a cool cool road to go down. She's a great female character, not only because of all the things that you just said, but also because she's a strong female character. She knows what she wants. Yeah. She sees McCoy and she's like, wow, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. What do you say? Right. Nice. I mean, she's not coy. She's, yeah. not, she's not playing around about the whole thing. She's like, all right, look. Um, yeah. Okay. So do you have a woman? <laughs> <laughs> right. how about you be my man i'll be your woman and we'll do this forever oh for a year okay for a year cool yeah she's a yeah, yeah she is a she is actually a she is a great character it flawed in the beginning certainly because of her unquestioning faith or her, her unwillingness to question her faith or mm-hmm. you know the things that she believes in um but yeah you're right she gets to grow she gets to change and and she's there's really not a moment in this episode where she is a weak character at all actually yeah yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty great. It's, it's one of the more adult relationships that we've seen on the show. So for that, you know, I'll, I, I will hold that up against some of the uh, the tragic relationships we've seen in the past, mostly centered around Kirk. Uh, but folks, you can tell us what you think, uh, how you feel about this episode, what we've had to say about it. We would love to hear from you. There's a few ways you can get in touch with us. Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. On all three of those places, our handle is Mission Log Pod. That is Mission Log Pod. Uh, you can call us at 323-522-5641. You can email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. Remember, we may use what you have to say on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Next week, the Tholian Web. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. If you have a relatively clean Yanata joke you would like to offer, please share it with us. Here, I'll start you off. Yonata is so. So. Nope, I got nothing. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.